So can you open with me to Ruth chapter 4? Ruth chapter 4 is where we will be finishing our time this morning, uh, finishing our, our series over the last couple of months. It's a love story we've seen, a love story between Ruth, who is a Moabite, a non-Jew, and Boaz, who is a slightly older, wealthier Jew, uh, Israelite man. And, and we've seen the, the, the intricacies and the complications of their relationship develop. And this week, we see the conclusion to all and, and the tying together of all the loose threads in this story. Uh, we, we have been learning especially that there's been a constant theme of God's sovereignty working through history and working in the lives of individuals to achieve God's redemption. Particularly, we've been seeing how God's sovereignty, which can so often just be, be a huge, big, out there in the atmosphere concept, what that looks like when it, when it ta- uh, takes place and takes hold of individual lives. And so with everything that has happened to Ruth and to Boaz and to Naomi, the author has been saying the Lord was doing this. The Lord was, was uh, we, we've been talking about the, the doctrine of providence. There are miracles that happen in the Bible and in our lives, but there is more commonly providence. The miracles are the visible hand of God. Providence is that invisible hand, which is in all things, behind all things, achieving his, his purposes. Now, we broke down providence. I'm, I'm swinging back to week one now because I don't want us to miss it. We defined providence, the, the, the reformed doctrine of God's providence, as being uh, in three parts. <clears throat> Number one, it is that God sustains all of creation. Number two, that he controls history. And number three, that he governs history towards the achieving of his goals. So God sustains all things, as Hebrews 1 tells us, that he uh, upholds all things by the word of his power. He also controls history. Our our London Baptist Confession, which we hold to here at Hope Church, from the 1600s, it says that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass so that there is not anything that befalls anyone by chance or without his providence. And and Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the dice is cast into the lap or onto the table and it's every decision is from the Lord. Every cell in our body, every atom in those cells, every star in the galaxies, every single thing is ordered according to God's wise providence. And that is thirdly, in order to achieve his ultimate purposes. So, so Ephesians 1.10 speaks to this, saying that, that God had this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things in earth. The, 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 his plan for the fullness of time. Now, I just want to say to anybody who's, who's at all uncomfortable with this doctrine of God's control over all things, it's good news. It is good that God is in charge that, and because For you, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then it is for your salvation to be united to him and saved. It is that God is working all things to the good of those who love him and to his own glory. This has been a a tremendously comforting doctrine as we've looked at it, uh, to know that the sovereign king is your shepherd, that the shepherd who guides you through life is the sovereign king on the throne. That has been a great blessing to know. But, but what we've been also looking at is that one big word, if you could choose one word to summarize all of biblical history, all that God is doing, his whole purpose throughout creation, what has been his, what was one word you would use to summarize all that? 
theologians use the word to, to really define all of it. They call it redemption. What God has been doing from the beginning, what God is doing right to the end is redemption, bringing back what has been lost to his glory. And so we've been seeing that. And this, since, since, since this has been his eternal plan of redemption, it's not surprising to look back before it was all manifested through Christ. We can look back before his time and see that in the Old Testament, God was giving clues and proofs, and God was uh, giving illustrations and stories and types and, uh, and, uh, and metaphors and imagery long ago pointing to the glorious truth of Christ's gospel. And we've seen that throughout the book of Ruth, how God has redeemed Ruth from her poverty and her widowhood, how God has redeemed the name and the family of Elimelech and Naomi, and how God has redeemed, in fact, through that line, all of Israel. And we'll see also that the cosmos, the universe has been redeemed through what occurs here in the book of Ruth. So that's going to be our three points today. We're going to finish off from uh, chapter 4, verse 10, all the way through to 4, verse 22. And we're going to see, number one, the redemption, uh, Ruth's redemption. Number two, Naomi's redemption. And number three, cosmic redemption. So can you read with me? I'm going to be, uh, begin our reading in Ruth chapter 4, verse 10, and I'll finish in uh, 12. So, uh, but I always forget to do this. A little bit of immediate context. Uh, Boaz is at the gate, right, which is like the council, the, the courthouse of the, of the town. He's there. He's an elder in the town. He's respected. He's called a meeting. He's done the paperwork. He's thrown down in front of the, the man who has a right to marry Ruth and gain her land. But Boaz has so shaped the contract that, that it looks like a bad deal for this guy, and it was going to be, because Boaz wanted the hand of Ruth in marriage. He wanted to marry her. And so he uh, signs a contract with witnesses, and, and then he said, I will therefore redeem the land of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. This is all from last week. And, and I will redeem her family. And then he goes on to say this, verse 10. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have, brought, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from the gate of his native place, from, sorry, from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and may you be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So there's some technical language happening here. This is legal proceedings. So, so Boaz is not on his old romantic self when he says, I have purchased this woman in order to give her father-in-law a grandson. That, that's not the most romantic thing he said, but this is legal proceedings. So you'll see three times he's saying back in verse 9, you are my witnesses. And then in verse 10, he, he concludes by saying, you are my witnesses. And then everybody else says, we are witnesses, right? It's all this legal Council right in the courthouse. They don't. They're not signing a contract per se, but they're all saying verbally, "We acknowledge Ruth is now your woman. The land is now your land. You have purchased those for yourself." So it's all legal stuff going on, which means that this is this is not technically the marriage, 
but the marriage is set in stone. They're not yet together, but right now is the answer that we've been waiting for. All the book of Ruth, they're going to be married. Redemption has come. They are going to live happily ever after. But uh, now the party will come later, but, but I want to show you that, do you remember last week? There was another man, like we said, the other guy who had the right to Ruth, but Boaz made the deal sound terrible. It'll cost you. You'll have no uh, uh, investment on this. It'll just be a loss. When the sun grows up, it'll take the land that you've purchased. No good, no good. And you have to marry this this foreigner, Ruth. You sure you want to do that? And he didn't. But but I think it would have been a strange sight as this man uh, almost lost all his money in, in a bad investment. And there's all these people gathering around Boaz to watch all this scene happen. And the elders nod and and he, you know, no, I won't take it. Hands it over to Boaz, who then says, well, then I will take this terribly bad investment and marry this woman, Ruth. And everybody starts cheering and throwing the streamers and dancing around. The music starts. And this guy is surely sitting there thinking, well, well, hang on. What did I miss? Why is this such an exciting thing going on? I feel like I've been gypped out here. And maybe he does, but we don't hear of him anymore because he's a nobody. He's not even named in this uh, book because he was so negligent of his family care for Ruth. Nonetheless, everybody starts cheering. All the people at the gates, yes, we are your witnesses and may you be blessed and may your house be built up and may you be of renown and fame. And Boaz is, I'm, I'm thinking he's probably being carried on the men's shoulders over to find Ruth. He's happy and it must be weird for the, old, uh, for the other redeemer. <clears throat> Nonetheless, I want to show you uh, what he says. So a couple of technical things. He says in verse 10, at the end, he says that Ruth is my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That is, remember, he's going to give a son to be an heir to uh, Elimelech who has died. But, uh, in order to, it says here, that his name may not be cut off from among his brothers. And that's language, Hebrew language for that his land might keep the name Elimelech over it. So, so in other words, keep his name, family line attached to that land because that is a a sign of shame to lose that from the family and a sign of honor that God would continue it on. So he's saying, keep the land in the family and so that his name will not be cut off from the gate of his native place. That is, in other words, keeping uh, and keep his family on the records in the, in the city council. Keep his name known in social standing so that the legacy of Elimelech may continue. Boaz is here in sacrificing his money to marry Ruth and take the land, this is a sacrifice for the good of Elimelech. You have to see the, 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 uh, the, the brotherly love. He is a faithful Hebrew, this man Boaz. So that's what he's done. And then they, the people there agree, yes, the land, the, the family line, all that. But Boaz, you and Ruth, that's why we're singing. That's why we're exciting. And so they start singing these blessings over Ruth and Boaz. I want to show you what it is <clears throat> that, uh, that, they, that they start looking at here. So they say, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house. Now, already you see a change in language. All the book, all these Jews have been referring to Ruth as the Moabites, the, the foreign woman, the lady who's not from here, who's from godless Moab, who used to worship the demon god Chemosh, that gal. Whereas now they simply refer to her as the woman coming into your house. This is a the sign of, of acceptance that she has now, having rejected uh, and repented of her former sins and gods, she has come under the wings of the refuge of Yahweh, and they accept her as one of their own. In fact, they compare her 
to the matriarchs, the, the women heroes of the faith in Israel. Read next. They say, may he make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. You, you'll remember, they're the two wives, the, the sisters who are the wives of bad marriage, but who are the wives of Jacob who became Israel. And, and their 12 sons that they bore to Jacob, who was named also Israel, became the 12 sons of Israel, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. These ladies, by the fruit of their wombs and also their maidservants, built the house of Israel. And so to look back on them as these fruitful, productive women of Israel and to compare Ruth to them is a sign of honor. They are saying, may you have many children, though you have had none yet. And it seems that Ruth was probably barren in her former marriage. She was married for 10 years without a child, chapter 1 tells us. Very strange. Maybe they, it says nothing of them having and losing children. Simply says, and especially in this culture, when, when children were a priority, first year of marriage, there was none. And so they are saying, may you have many children, but also may you have important children. May you have a children and, 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 and descendants that build up the house of Israel. And we will see later just how true that prayer, uh, how, how, how that prayer comes true. But notice also, they, so they bless, they bless um, uh, Ruth in this way. May you be like Leah and Rachel, the both of them in one woman to build up the house of Israel by your children. But then also they turn to Boaz and say, uh, in, in verse 11, and may you act worthily in Ephrathah, and may you be renowned in Bethlehem. Those words, act worthily, can otherwise be translated as become wealthy or become productive and prosperous. They're, they're the, the two things that are going on here. The, the same word can be translated either way. In other words, what they're saying is, by this woman taking a wife and having a whole bunch of babies, may you become rich, powerful, and wealthy. Now, does our culture see children as things which add value and wealth to our families? Absolutely not. We're, we're told you have kids, they'll drain your money. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not a blessing. They're, if you, they're a necessary evil, but you know, the world's ending anyway. Climate change, don't have kids. It's, it's good for, the, good for the, the planet. Well, the Bible shows, and to any, now this is a cultural thing, that in an, in an agricultural family uh, culture, uh, you need kids to work the land, that they're free laborers. That still happens in many houses today. Now, that's a good thing, that, that you grow up and you serve your dad's farm and you can bring in greater money for less cost. And, and so children, the Bible says, are a blessing from the Lord. They're like arrows in the quiver. The more you have, the better. That's the other, the, the idea going on. And this actually, again, as we've been going over and over again and, and reflecting on Proverbs 31, so also all commentators at this point point over to Proverbs 31, verse 11 and 12, in this poem about this glorious, worthy, excellent wife is these verses. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. This is the, the biblical imagery of family in marriage. God blesses it. Now, I'm not promising riches if you get married. That, that's not what's going on. But 
God smiles upon marriage. And in the old covenant, the sign of that was the building up of your family. And Boaz was sure as his children would raise and plenty of them, he would also make back that investment that he, that he lost in the purchase of the land. So they're praying for his blessing, but also that he be renowned in Bethlehem. In other words, they're saying thousands of years from now, when people look back and tell the stories of the heroes of the faith of, of Israelites and of whatever is to come in the kingdom of God, may they look back and maybe even preach sermons about Boaz. And surely Boaz had a chuckle. No one's going to remember the name Boaz. And yet here we are all this time later, because of what happened to his children, he was plastered into the family line of the king of Israel and the family line even of the king who now sits on the throne of the entire universe. They prayed for, and surely they thought they were just overshooting the mark. May you just be famous forever because you married this little barren woman and may she give you lots of kids. They're just hopeful and prayerful and faithful, but they don't know what's going to happen. We know what happened, and we will get there soon. But that's their prayer. And then they go back to Ruth. So they're not done yet. Blessing and blessing and blessing. They go back to Ruth and say, may your house, so still talking to Boaz, but about Ruth, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, and may it be in that way because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, hint. You don't want children like Perez and Tamar had from Judah. You don't want that. If you know your biblical history, you can look back. And the story of that was that uh, uh, Judah was one of the sons of Israel, and that he had a son, and that that son had a wife, Tamar. And but he died without giving Tamar a child. And as we've seen, what, what happens in that situation? Another kinsman redeemer, another son comes in, gives her a child, and then goes back to his own home so that she can have uh, a legacy and an inheritance. Well, Judah did not see to that. He let his daughter-in-law, bereft and widowed, to go alone. She asked and pleaded, but she was neglected her right to a son and another marriage. And so she dresses as a woman of the night by a well, seduces her father-in-law, gets pregnant with a young man named Perez and has that baby and therefore gains the inheritance, you know, comes out in a bit of a public scandal saying uh, Judah's the father and therefore gets all of the inheritance. Now, now, why are these women saying, may your marriage be just like Judah and Tamar? Why are they saying that? Because though that was, now they might not know exactly what's going on in the background that I'm going to point to. But they were at least saying that this woman who had a child, his name was Perez, and he became the leader of the clan of Judah. He was actually, of all the, the, clan, the, the uh, ancestors that we see, or all the descendants coming from the tribe of Judah, at the head of those was Perez. He was a man of renown, a man of leadership and prominence. And that's what they're praying. May you have a child of leadership. May you have a child who leads and has plenty of his own children. But what else is going on in the background is this. The Tamar was a foreigner. She was widowed without a child. She was refused and neglected her right to kinsman redeeming. And because of her cleverness through seduction, though sinful, she gained for herself children and therefore an inheritance and had children of prominence. 
Now, what's going on with Ruth is somewhat similar. She is a foreigner who has been widowed, who has neglected her right to kinsman redeeming by this other bloke, and, and Boaz wasn't jumping, to the, jumping up to the mark. And so she, by her cleverness, though without sin, does not seduce Boaz, but proposes marriage to Boaz, and therefore gains a husband, children, and an inheritance, and has worthy children. So it's somewhat similar. And, and, and that's what, why I think the author of the book of Ruth includes that here. And we look back and say, friends, this prayer was fulfilled by a God who is sovereign and a God who is good, achieving his purposes in and through human decisions. <clears throat> well, by the Lord's hand, she was left widowed and poor. And yet by the Lord's hand, when she trusted herself to him, she, she, like Peter, she said, where else can I go? This Lord, this Yahweh alone has the words of eternal life. She promised herself to come back, though she may die, and she found blessing under the sovereign hand of God. I want to ask, where are you today? Uh, you may be in, in suffering. You may be in a terrible spot, maybe in your marriage. Maybe you've, you've got damaged friendships. Maybe you're in sickness or affliction of some kind, or you're just in a spot in life that seems dry. You're not sure what's to happen. The, the promise that we see coming through this example of Ruth is that to trust yourself to the Lord now is not your last-ditch effort. It is your greatest hope. It is your only option. Trust your life, whatever mess it may be in, to the hands of a good and sovereign king, he will see to it that his purposes for your life come to fruition. And I'm not going to promise here that that means wealth and all your friends come back and everything looks great. Let's just assume our plans always worse than God's plans. But he has a plan and he can work it. Trust yourself under the wings of his refuge like Ruth did. Throw your sin to him. Trust him with it all and he will work his purposes. So that's, it concludes like this, this redemption of Ruth. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And, and that's all that we hear about those two. And now we go to Naomi. But what a beautiful ending today. It's the same as the ending of the whole Bible. But Jesus comes back, takes his church and makes us his wife. Forevermore, happy, blessed, sinless. I'm looking forward to that day. So let's keep going. So, so verse 13 continues. And from here, we're going to see Naomi's redemption. We've seen Ruth's redemption through Boaz. Let's see Naomi's redemption. It, it reads like this. Verse 13b says, the Lord gave her, that is, uh, oh, sorry, it says, and he went into her, that's Boaz and Ruth, and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Let me speak to this uh, briefly, that, that what we see um, in the book of Ruth here through this language is that God is sovereign over families. We saw the death of the, of the men being under God's hand. We've seen the building up of the uh, families by God's hand. The womb is under the sovereign will and hand of God. We see here that God gives and withholds children. Verse 11, they, they're praying, may the Lord make this woman have, have many children like Leah and Rachel. Verse 12, may you be like, Tamar and Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you through this woman. Children are heritage or a blessing from the Lord. He gives them. And, and it says here that uh, in verse 13, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Uh, children, the, the womb, conception, they are all under God's sovereign plan. It's not a miracle. There is a sense in which life is a miracle in the womb. 
And yet it's not an outward miracle, it's under God's providence. That sometimes, as 1 Samuel chapter 1 tells us with Hannah, he closes wounds, holding it in, in barrenness, unable to bear a child. And other times he gives blessing in opening the womb on purpose. So, so let's know here, children are always on purpose, never accidental. There are accidental parents, I've heard it said, but never accidental children. God gives children. However, wherever there is an inability to conceive or an inability to carry to term, God does not allot that to wasn't his responsibility. You sort that out, but promises you still then in the heartache that God is sovereign there. He still shepherds you through those periods or years or whole life of darkness through the shadow of death, and he walks with you. God is sovereign over the womb. God is sovereign and know that God is good. Whether the situation changes, as you trust yourself to God and all that he does, whether redemption of that situation looks like children, God, God miraculously brings children, or it looks like adoption, or fostering, it's such a godly thing to do, or it looks like childlessness until the end of your life. Either way, no, God is sovereign and God is good. And we've been learning that through the book of Ruth. Let's keep going. The, the, the spotlight changes and shifts directly on to Naomi. Ruth and Boaz, they sort of pass out stage left. The spotlight moves over onto Naomi, over onto the side. When you see this beautiful scene, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel, the same prayer for her. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This is somewhat of a scene of kind of maybe a baby shower. This is ladies only. It's just the gals and Naomi and the baby at this point. Uh, guys are outside working, hopefully. The, the ladies are here and they're singing to Naomi. They're so proud of all glad in what the Lord has done. And they sing to her and say, may you be blessed. This is, this is the redemption of your husband's family line. May you take joy here. There is, there is a debate among the scholars as to whether or not this is official adoption. That it says that she takes him to her and places him on her lap and, and it looks like this is, this is a way, this is in her household, and she became his nurse. Whether that means that she actually became the adoptive mother or some kind of fostering mother of, of Obed or or maybe she just looked after, he was to live with her, to serve her, and therefore be the worker, the provider, the nourisher in her old age. Whatever's happening, we're not entirely sure. This child became like a child of Naomi's, her own. Can you imagine her grandmother for the first time? that She, she thought this would never come. Got a baby sitting on her lap and all her friends around her singing. Those ladies who saw her come into Jerusalem, come into Bethlehem. So here's Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. That means sweet. Call me Mara. That means bitter. The Lord has emptied my life. Now she sits with full hands, a baby on her lap. And I think that in that scene, the only thing that could have made that sweeter was to be able to look up and see Elimelech with her and look to the other side and see her two sons sitting with her. That would have been heavy on her heart that she is here enjoying this, but without her closest loved ones. 
But the reality is, isn't it, that by God's providence, if Elimelech was there, that baby would not have been. That it was, in fact, the greatest blessing that came to Naomi came by necessity after her greatest hurts. In fact, some due to sin. That you and I can, can, can fall into a trap that maybe Naomi was fighting. That we can look at hurts, difficulties, sins in our past and think, I wish I could get rid of all of them. I wish I could do away with them and forget them and wipe them off the slate. But isn't it true that some of the greatest displays of God's grace, some of the greatest workings of his providential power in your life has been not just incidental, but because of those things that happen. And to wish away the pain is to wish away the touching hand of a healing God. And so Naomi is there and enjoying the child and and she dare not wish away the pain from her past that makes this moment all the sweeter. But there she is. She's with her child. She, She entrusted herself to the Lord when she came back. She knew all of her hurt was at his hand. She trusts her future to him. Let me repeat myself. As I said earlier today, look back and do not ignore your pain. Look back at it all so that you can see the the working of God in and through the situations and his grace to bring you here. That twas grace that brought you safely this far and his grace will lead you on. Trust, sinner, sinner, saved or, or not yet trusting in Christ. You are a sinner like me, like Ruth, like Naomi. Trust the Lord with all of you. Not just those sins in the past that you know, not just those, those little things that you wish were, you, you know, those mistakes that didn't happen, your deepest and darkest, your, your greatest hurts, throw them to God in Christ. In Jesus, God absorbs them all, places them to his account, your, your sins, punishes him for them all, leaving you guiltless and, and gifts to you the righteousness of Christ that he earned through the law. He came, friends, as we sung, there is a redeemer. Blessed be the Lord, as the women sung, that, that the Lord has not left us without a redeemer. Hopeless, guilty, shameful in and of ourselves. A redeemer has come to bring us back to the Lord. In Christ, your sins of the past, end of the future, and whatever else happens can be trusted in the good, sovereign, gracious, forgiving hand of our God. That is Naomi's redemption, her confidence. And I want to finish off here by just looking at the the redemption that comes to the cosmos, the the universal redemption that comes through Ruth's line and Obed. So so look at now in verse 17. And, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. This is very unusual that everyone else would name the baby. The only other place I can find it in Scripture was that passage that James read for us in our call to worship of of Zechariah, who was mute, and his wife Elizabeth, who who they have John the Baptist as a baby, and everyone else, since the dad's mute, they all name the baby. And and Zechariah, through all all that happens, he is able to write down, no, this shall be his name, John, as the Lord has said. And the Lord opens his mouth and he praises God that he has provided redemption and forgiveness of sins. I don't know if... If God intentionally made those connected at all, maybe, maybe that was by mistake, right? That, that happens. 
No, of course not. I think we're being thrown between the stories here and, and being thrown to the coming king by, by, by what happens here. Nonetheless, the women, for some reason, are given the opportunity and privilege of naming the son. A son has been born to Naomi, they said, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Obed means one who serves because he's going to grow up. He's going to be the servant of Naomi. Well, let's look at how this, this is more than just the redemption of a family. This is more than just one guy, Elimelech, having his honor restored. This is more than just, just one family line being restored. I want, I want to show you in verse 18 through to 22 how this affects all of us. Follow with me in verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. So all the way back to the son of Judah. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This genealogy, if you actually check the books, they're skipping some lines, they're skipping some. But it's, it's typical of a royal ancestry. That there would be 10 generations named. That's why the author does this. He picks some of the most prominent uh, ancestors leading down from Perez through to David. Now, I want to show you that, that, um, that this is showing from Perez's line. So, so Judah, for example, he was the, 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 the father of Perez um, and the grandfather. So anyway, uh, the father of Perez, and he, uh, he was a prominent leader, wealthy, strong man in the line. And then also you'll see down in verse 20, Nashon. Nashon was also a great leader among the people, a, a prominent man, and, uh, and, and then comes down the line. So, so this is a, gene, a royal genealogy showing that the highlights of the ancestry. But going on, Obed here you need to see. Is, the, is carrying on a legacy, the redemption of the whole clan. Now, we know Boaz had other relatives. They could have carried on the name of, of Perez and all that this would happen. But, but here, this, this glorious legacy is restored and, and amplified, that it became all the more glorious, this family line. And so that's what Obed is doing. This is what is happening. But it's so much more than that. As we just read in four, chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, the women said, may you be like uh, Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. They're praying, may you have sons and, aunts and descendants that build up the house of Israel. Well, we see here as Jesse fathered David, that David is precisely that man, the most prominent of all Jews, the king on the throne who built up Israel. He was the one who stormed Jerusalem, took it from the Jebusites, and established that as the city of David, the royal city where the temple would be built. He was the one who, who established the armies and made a great time of peace throughout the land by the blood of his enemies. But I want to show that there was a greater king who was to come. The, the king of the world, King Jesus. This was not just the redemption of a family. This is not just the redemption of a nation through David. This is the redemption of the world. That Jesus, he is the one who in Colossians 1, it says that in the fullness of time, God was pleased 
to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all of the tribe of Judah. No. All of the nation of Israel. No. All things, Paul says, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Where David established peace by killing his enemies, Christ established peace by giving up his own blood, his own life. Philippians 2 says that, so I want to show you the prominence, the kingship, the the, the glory of this descendant who would have renown from Ruth. Uh, Philippians 2 says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The third layer added. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Psalm 110 would be written about David and amplified to Christ to say that God said to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footrests. That's Jesus who is coming through David. Much greater than David, yet through David. And and all of this because he, even more so than Obed, was the servant. He was the king like David. He was the servant like Obed. Philippians 2 tells us that the reason he was given the name above every name was that because being found, uh, 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 though he was in the nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Mark 10 tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Naomi would not have listened to you, believed you, or given, given one word in edgewise if you, standing next to the grave of Elimelech 10 years ago, told her with a pat on the back, a great king will come because of this very thing, and in fact the whole world will be reconciled to Yahweh. She would throw you away, spit in your face, saying, you are mocking me, flattering me, let me mourn. Yet it is true that in that moment, God was weaving together his plan of not just redemption for the dead man Elimelech, but redemption for the world through Christ. I don't care where you are at this morning, wherever you are, you are in no place further from the Lord's providence than Naomi was when next to the grave of her husband, she added Malon and Kilion, her sons. Wherever you are, whatever situation you are in, you are in this world. You are either in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And all of those things are under the reign of Christ. Your one option. You you can live your whole life in frustration against the purposes of the sovereign. You can live your whole life, and at the end, all things will work out together for your damnation if you will not bend the knee to this King Christ. Or you can, you can throw off your own wisdom, your own way of living, and bring with you your sin, throw it for the cross of Christ, and trust him for redemption. Trust him for salvation, forgiveness, and love, and spiritual marriage into his covenant. And then all things will work for you for your good, whether terrible death or glorious children being born to you. That is our only hope. That is a glorious hope. Today, repent of sin, 
come to Christ. And Christian, if you are still wondering whether you have, you have marred your, your testimony, marred your life too much to be brought back into the, to the sovereign purposes of God, God redeems any and all situations. Trust him with it. Come to him. And friends, that is a glorious God that we serve. Let's pray. We are unworthy, God, to call on your name. And yet, through Christ, you have given us the right to be called sons and daughters. So, God, we bring memories of a life that has been spent in sin. And we bring our, our past that has damned us and condemned us. We bring our ruined life that has been brought to misery through our own foolishness and sin. Uh, self-righteousness and, and pretending. And we bring it to you, God, and ask that you would put the punishment to Christ's account as you did those years ago on the cross and that you would take our future and use it for your glory and give us a joy in that. I pray, Lord, that, that those of us who have come to trust in you would trust that you are the good, gracious sovereign, that every wound is being used for our glory, that every difficulty is 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 a thread in the great tapestry of your cosmic redemption. We thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for all that you are doing in and through us. May Jesus be glorified in the salvation of souls today and forevermore. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.